The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. So, uh, welcome to week 13 of uh, our study of the book of Acts. We are going to be concluding uh, part two today, which we've entitled The Spirit-Empowered Community. And uh, just to kind of help you keep track of where we've been, uh, when we started off, uh, we started off in Acts uh, chapters 1 to 6, and the whole focus of uh, what happens here is in Jerusalem and very much influenced by Judaism. So in part one, we have Jesus uh, passing the mission on, filling the early church with the Holy Spirit. Um, they're meeting in the temple. Um, they are uh, gathering together from house to house. They're caring for all the needs that are among them. Um, but it's still very much Hebrew-speaking Jews in Jerusalem city limits. All of the action for the first two or three years takes place there. And that kind of forms sort of what I called uh, the first part of Acts, the Jerusalem chapter of God's redemptive work through his people as the church expands um, from Jerusalem to Rome. And then uh, Acts chapter 2, the second part, uh, this was Acts uh, 7 to 12. This uh, was the area that kind of stretched outside uh, the Jerusalem city limits to Judea and Samaria. And so this is the, uh, this is the section that we will be uh, finishing up today, uh, that part two section. And so you can see that what Jesus predicted was going to happen is happening. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And of course, Acts chapter, or the third part of Acts, which I have uh, called Acts part three, goes from chapters 13 to the end of the book. So it's a big chunk, but this is the ends of the earth chapter. The ends of the earth has the gospel spreads beyond the confines of um, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and starts to move into Asia Minor and eventually to Europe. Uh, in this uh, third act, as I'm calling it, third act, part three, the missionary journeys of Paul, there will be three missionary journeys that we follow that will kind of be the format that we follow through the rest of the course. So that's kind of giving you an idea where we've come and where we are going. Now, one of the things I do want to mention before we kind of jump in today to uh, our section uh, at the end of uh, chapter 11 and into verse 12 is I want to remind you that what happens in the book of Acts is not sort of isolated in the scriptures. It's part of the narrative arc of what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. There is a correspondence between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. The first two chapters of the Bible talked about how did this all get started? And the last two chapters of the Bible talk about where is this all going? How is it going to end up? And the 64 books in between and largest part of Genesis and Revelation tell one story. And I want to take a couple of moments just to trace the narrative thread that leads us to where we are right now in this particular uh, place in Acts. And so there's lots of verses that I could call upon. I'm just going to cherry pick a few to help us sort of see the continuity. And the, the very first verse I'll refer to is in Genesis chapter 3. And of course, this is the incident where um, Adam and Eve, the serpent and God, 
have a nose-to-nose meeting about what has just transpired. Adam and Eve, under the temptation of the serpent, have made the choice to kind of reject God's will to do their own thing, and, uh, and so they are going to be moved outside the Garden of Eden, and life starts to get much more difficult. But as God is explaining to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent what is going to happen next, he says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Now, apart from the rest of the scriptures, that sounds like a pretty enigmatic kind of statement. You know, what's going on there? But what God was prophesying, if you will, uh, to the serpent, is that he was having a day of comeuppance, that there was going to be one of the offspring of this woman that eventually would crush him. And the question, of course, is, well, who is this he? Who is this person? As you kind of continue through the narrative in Genesis, you finally catch up with Abraham. And keep in mind, what God says to Abraham is, before Moses, before the law, before the temple, before there's anything called Judaism, God reaches out to uh, Abraham, calls him out of the land of the Chaldees, and along the way, he makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I am going to bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all, circle the word all, the families of the earth will be blessed. So before there is a people of God, before there is a nation of Israel, God has spoken to Abraham already and said, here is the big picture. Your descendants will be the vehicle through which all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And so that's another clue uh, in the big picture. Well, finally, Moses does come upon the scene, and God does impart to him um, the, uh, the law and uh, all the things that are attached to it. Uh, the tabernacle where God dwells and where uh, the people maintain their relationship with God. And along the way, uh, Moses says this. Stephen quotes this in his, his speech earlier in the book of Acts. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from among your brothers like me. To him you shall listen. And of course, in the context, the question is, well, who in the world is... Um, Moses talking about. Stephen said, well, he was talking about Jesus, the Messiah, which is the heart of the New Testament message. Um, and so Moses is kind of looking ahead, predicting that someone like him, a prophet like him, will be coming. And so you kind of have this anticipation, all of these clues add up. Well, who is this stranger that everybody is referring to? Uh, Moses picks up the theme at the beginning of uh, the Gospels, and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John the Baptist fills in a few more of the details, gives us a little better understanding of who this person is that we've been talking about throughout the scriptures. And then finally, it sort of comes to a head when um, Jesus is talking to his apostles, and uh, he sort of says to them, so, you know, what are people saying about me? And you know, they say, well, the word on the street is that, you know, you're John the Baptist or you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus gets really directed and he looks at them and says, well, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he basically finally, this is the big reveal in a sense, uh, where Peter finally says, 
this is who you are. This is who we've come to understand you to be. And so Jesus, before he ascends uh, to heaven, spends some time with the apostles, and he says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and on all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so that kind of is the forward momentum, the forward progress of what actually started in chapter 3 of Genesis, finally seeing fruition and being actualized in what takes place in the early church. And by the way, it's still being lived out in our day. So some people have said that Acts has got actually 29 chapters, not 28 chapters like it is in your Bible. But 29 chapter, the 29th chapter is the chapter where all of our names show up as the mission of God continues to go into the world. So I just thought it would be good to sort of trace the fact that, you know, Acts follows that whole narrative arc of God's redemptive purposes for the world. First of all, through his Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, and now through his New Testament people, what we call the church of Jesus Christ. So let's get into um, uh, our study of the book of Acts. If you've got your Bible with you, you'll want to turn to Acts chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. Now keep in mind that at this point, the center of the Christian witness to the Gentiles is shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch in Syria. And the book now of Acts now turns its attention there. Uh, the fact that in Antioch we will find Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus shows us that the expansion of this new messianic movement to include Gentiles was not an exception or an accident. The, the Cornelius incident wasn't a one-up, but this is becoming the new rule as the news of Jesus is taken from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And so we pick up the narrative in chapter 19 of verse 11, and this is what we read. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, by the way, if you remember this is an echo of what happened after Philip's ministry in Samaria. Uh, Luke kind of introduces what follows up with words just like this, and so I don't think that's by accident. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, what we know as Lebanon now, and Cyprus and Antioch in Syria, and uh, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, North Africa, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now when he came, and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch and for a whole year uh, met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So that's the narrative. What's happening here? Um, as Luke shares with us, the persecution following G uh, Stephen's death scatters the church, and so you've got the believers from Jerusalem going north, and as they get as far north as Antioch, they are preaching wherever and whenever they go. Um, so they are preaching primarily to the Jewish-speaking, the Hebrew-speaking Jews uh, in the area, and uh, at the same time, 
you had other uh, uh, believing Jews coming from Cyrene to Antioch speaking to the Greek-speaking Jews. So do you get the picture? In this city of Antioch, you've got kind of this two-pronged missionary effort. Uh, the believers from Jerusalem speaking to the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and these other disciples from Cyrene and Cyprus speaking to the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jews. So there's a lot of missionary activity going on in the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch itself uh, was the capital of the Roman province of Syria, and it was the third largest city in the empire. So it was a very significant center in its day. Uh, people estimate somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people live there, which would make it a major center in those days. Uh, it was a melting pot of both Eastern and Western traditions. Uh, Jewish and Roman traditions mingled with Semitic and Arab and Persian influences. Uh, and it was thought that the Jewish community in Antioch might have accounted for 7 to 10 percent of the entire population. So there was a significant Jewish influence in the city. So it is to this city that you've got the believers coming up from Jerusalem, the other missionaries coming in from Cyrene and Cyprus, all kind of coalescing in this city of Antioch. Uh, as it becomes a new center of um, uh, missionary activity. And so Luke starts this chapter the same way he starts the chapter to introduce the Samaritan chapter. Uh, at the same time, oh, by the way, if you're following along on your outline, it's by God's power that the church is growing and many are turning to Jesus Christ the Messiah as the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord. So even though Luke says, yes, you had these believers going up, from Jerusalem, you had them coming from beyond Cyprus and Cyrene. It was really by God's power that people were coming to faith. And so Luke likes to emphasize this fact that it was the moving of God that is ultimately responsible for uh, the successes they were having. But he used these apostles to get the message across. So there is a lot happening in the city of Antioch. Um, Think about this, you know, if you are the head of the church in Jerusalem, which is still kind of the headquarters of the Christian mission, um, Samaritans now have been converted, people who were half Jews and, and half something else. Um, there were some Gentiles, isolated incident up in Caesarea, who came to faith. And now, to Jerusalem, comes news of the mixed congregation in Antioch experiencing conversions to Jesus Christ. And so, growing pains are beginning to be felt as the church scales out and its influence widens and uh, it becomes uh, impactful in more and more people's lives. So, when the leadership of the church in Jerusalem Here's the news, the reports of what's going on in Antioch about the evangelistic testimony and its impact. They feel that they need to send somebody they trust up to Antioch to see whether or not they are preaching the same gospel that Jesus has passed on to the Jerusalem apostles and if the activity that is going on up there is in concert with God's bigger redemptive purpose with the mission of Jesus Christ. And so they send Barnabas uh, to check out the situation and verify its legitimacy. Now, keep in mind that when Philip had tremendous success in Samaria, they sent Peter and John up to see whether or not um, uh, that was a genuine move of the Spirit, and it was. Now they have sent Barnabas as one full of the Spirit and of faith, a man with spiritual discernment. He's an experienced mission leader, he's a theological teacher, he's a church organizer, and what he finds in Antioch is clear evidence of the grace of God working in the conversion of people as they come to Christ. And so he 
kind of comes alongside and he exhorts people to stay faithful, to keep following Jesus Christ, and his impact results in even more people coming to the Lord. So you're kind of getting the idea that there's a lot of movement and action taking place in the city of Antioch. Now Barnabas, who has always been an encourager and a bridge builder, kind of looks at what is taking place in Antioch and realizing this thing is growing exponentially and we need the kind of leadership that will kind of help it move in the right direction, that will stay true to Jesus' original message. And so he remembers Saul. Now Saul is in Tarsus, and uh, we know from history, though the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about those years, that uh, Saul was busy preaching the gospel wherever he went, uh, engendered some opposition, as we'll find out later on in his letters. But think about this, in the timeline, what transpires here next, is probably about 14 to 15 years after Pentecost and probably about 10 or 11 years after um, Saul came to faith. So a decade has gone by by the time we get to this particular place in the story. So uh, Saul has an established track record. Barnabas has uh, a belief in Saul and the legitimacy of his ministry. You'll remember he is the one that kind of brought Paul originally after his conversion to the Jerusalem leadership and uh, stood in his behalf and advocated for him. And so he has never been long out of Barnabas' mind. And when Barnabas sees this unique need in Antioch, it is to Saul that he turns. And so he goes, he gets Saul, they come back to Antioch, and they work together in the city for an entire year, stabilizing the church and giving it direction. And we read that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians or those of the household of Christ, or Christ followers. And it kind of is a hint that the church now is beginning to forge its own identity as distinct from Judaism. Now this is important for a couple of reasons. Up until this point, um, the Christian uh, church or the Christian uh, community has kind of flown underneath the covering of Judaism. Uh, popularly, they're sort of seeing as a subset or a sect of Judaism. And of course, with that comes some certain privileges and protections because of the understanding Romans had with the Jews, giving them certain amount of discretion in areas that were unique to their particular culture and community. So uh, up till now, uh, the church was flying kind of under the covering of Judaism proper, but here in Antioch, they start to forge an identity separate from Judaism. This is where it begins. And so as a result, they move out from kind of under that way of being understood. And of course, there are some challenges that will arise, as we will find as we move through the book of Acts, that come as a result of that. At the same time, those people who are coming to faith in Antioch are uh, beginning to realize who they are as a community of faith, uh, the body of Christ, as it were. And, uh, and yet at the same time, you know, they share the same hope that Israel shares, uh, and what's their continuity with the Old Testament promises, which they still feel pertains to them? Um, and so there's sort of this tension trying to, how do we find our place? Um, we're now establishing ourselves more and more as a separate group apart from Judaism, but certainly some of those promises are still belong to us, don't they? And so two of these things are kind of going on as the church establishes its own identity. Now, we read... Uh, uh, in the last part of chapter 11, something interesting that takes place. And um, it says in verse 27 that in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. By the way, interesting to note 
that uh, with the coming of John the Baptist, uh, prophecy in the New Testament kind of comes back into um, effect. Uh, for 400 silent years, there was not a word from God from Malachi until John the Baptist. Uh, there was no kind of uh, word from beyond. And all of a sudden, with John the Baptist, prophecy is kind of revived. And we now realize that prophecy plays a significant role in the early church as well. And so we read in verse 27, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. By the way, even though Antioch is north of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is on a high place, no matter which direction you go from Jerusalem, you're always going down. <laughs> That's just kind of the way they thought geographically there. And one of them named Agabus, one of the prophets, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, the spirit of prophecy is reestablishing itself. Agabus comes up with a company of prophets from Jerusalem, and he foresees, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that there is going to be a um, regional calamity. There is going to be a famine that is upcoming. And uh, this is going to happen during uh, the reign of the Emperor Claudius, and if you look historically into this whole event, it wasn't really just one famine, it was a whole series of crop failures and famines that covered a period of time under his reign. And so Agabus, with the Holy Spirit's help, foresees this, and the um, disciples in Antioch kind of do the math and realize that the disciples in Jerusalem are gonna be particularly hard hit by this famine when it comes. And so they make a decision. They accept Agabus' prophecy as legitimate, and they start making plans to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, which is, I think, a huge event where this group that the church in Jerusalem isn't sure, you know, if it's all legitimate, um, one of the signs of their legitimacy is they turn around and care for their brothers back in Jerusalem. And so they gather, it says, everyone according to their ability gave some money for the support of um, the disciples in Jerusalem to get them through the famine, and they send it to Jerusalem uh, with uh, Paul and Barnabas as kind of the representatives. And this is probably the visit that's kind of noted in, I think it's Galatians 2, chapters 1 to 10. That's probably the visit where they bring that money to the Jerusalem church. And so, um, so the concerned disciples in Antioch determined to send relief to their brothers in Jerusalem. So, um, so we get into chapter 12, and um, it's almost interesting that when we come to chapter 12, it's almost like a back-at-the-ranch moment, you know? So here's what's happening in Antioch of Syria, but let's not forget what's going on in Jerusalem. And so Luke kind of takes us back so we don't lose track of the fact that God isn't just moving in Antioch, he is moving in Jerusalem still. He's still interested in what is going on there. And so... Uh, this whole section is introduced by this phrase in chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some of those who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. He wanted to make sure he didn't get away. Uh, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer 
uh, for him was being made by the church. So um, with its acceptance of the conversion of half-Jews in Samaria and Gentile soldiers and his friends in Caesarea and Gentiles loosely associated with this uh, synagogue in Antioch, um, the Jerusalem church is straining to maintain the forms and commitments of Judaism. Uh, soon the Christian mission would break out of those limits and go directly to the Gentile world. But Luke brings us back to Jerusalem to help us to understand what God was doing there. And so his focus is on the power of God at work in Jerusalem in the face of opposition. And along the way, he talks us about an important change in leadership of the Jerusalem church. So Herod Agrippa. In order to really appreciate this passage, you have to understand something about Herod Agrippa. Uh, Herod Agrippa came to power through a series of circumstances and machinations and backroom deals and horse trading and you know he was the ultimate political manipulator and uh, he eventually convinced Rome to give him rulership in Judea and Samaria and eventually they expanded his territory so eventually he came to rule over the entire area that was ruled by a predecessor of his Herod the Great so he's managed through you know backroom trading and a lot of other nefarious purposes to actually gain control over uh, a large part of, of that part of the world. And he ruled according to the policy of Pax Romana. And of course, the Pax Romana roughly is the Roman peace. In other words, the rulers in the Pax Romana in the Roman Empire, their number one job was to keep peace. They didn't want insurrections, they didn't want riots, they didn't want, you know, uh, anything that would threaten the stability of the empire. And so the way Herod went about doing this is, as many rulers in those days did, he decided, I will support the majority of the people, their points of view, of the people who I'm in charge of, and I will persecute the minorities that upset the majority. And so this was an early form of majority rule, I suppose, in one sense, even though it was kind of passed down from above. And um, the Christians at the time had drawn some derision and some angst from the Jewish community. And Agrippa was politically astute enough to pick up on this. And he decides, eager to appease the masses, especially this Jewish part of his um, uh, population, he decides to attack the church. Everybody seems to be upset with them. I'm going to join them, and I am going to lean on them hard. And so he takes it to the extent that he... Uh, executes James the Apostle. This isn't the James we'll read about at the end of this particular verse. This is James the Apostle, the son of John, or the brother of John. And when he sees how excited the Jews were about, when he saw how pleased they were that he had moved against the church in this way, he thought, well, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound. I'm going to arrest Peter too. If they were thrilled with the execution of James, just think of how good it's going to be for me if I take Peter out as well. And so he arrests him, you know, it seems sort of like maybe off the cuff perhaps, I don't know, but he arrests him during the Jewish Passover, of course, which is a problem in that there isn't going to be any executions uh, in Jerusalem during the Jewish Passover. So the Passover and the Passover week, the week of unleavened bread, he realizes he arrests Peter, but he's gonna have to wait till that's all over before he does anything about it. And so, uh, Peter is arrested, he's put it in the uh, prison, probably on the temple grounds in the Antonia, uh, and uh, they're waiting for the Passover week to be over. And so uh, Peter is in prison, 
but the church is busy um, praying for him diligently. That's what uh, Luke tells us. Now, what takes place next is some of the most interesting uh, dialogue, interesting narrative uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, there are places of it that are amazing, and there's places of it that are amusing, but follow along with me as we trace it through. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on the very night, Peter was sleeping between two, soldier, <coughs> two soldiers, excuse me, bound by two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So he is secure, folks. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And then he said, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and uh, followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought it was a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them all of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. So you get the picture, okay? Uh, Agrippa is going to score big points with the populace. He's going to execute Peter as well. He arrests him during Passover week, and he's just waiting for his moment to bring him to trial. And I'm sure he's got um, taking Peter out of the way in mind as well. But God intervenes directly by sending an angel to Peter. Now, Peter is half asleep and tends to be half asleep for a good part of what happens next. So that the angel is almost kind of having to tell him, you know, step by step, exactly what to do. Like, uh, he's not completely uh, uh, lucid. He's not completely awake. And so he jostles Peter to get his attention. And then he says, put on your shoes. And then he says, put on your cloak. And then he says, follow me. And Peter is just sort of, in what he thinks is a dream, just following these instructions. And the angel leads him step by step out of the prison, miraculously, past the guards and through the gates, until Peter finds himself alone on the street. And he thought he was dreaming. It's only when he gets out on the street that finally he is fully awake, and he realizes the miraculous nature is what taken place. But he also realizes, whoa, I'm out here in a public street, and I'm supposed to be in prison. I think he figures that out at the same time. And so we read that when he realized this, that he had been brought out miraculously, when it finally dawns on him, uh, he went to the house of Mary, this is in verse 12, uh, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and many were gathered there praying for him. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice, and in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. I love this particular part of the narrative, just the way that it unfolds and how Luke tells it. So fully awake, Peter decides to get out of the public view where he might be discovered. He makes his way to a place he's familiar with, to Mary's place. And uh, many are there praying for him, and he knows that there's a group of people meeting there. And so he's knocking on the door. 
which um, gets Rhoda, a servant girl's attention. And as she approaches the door, she hears him speaking. Let me in, it's Peter, let me in. Come on, please, let me in. Um, she gets so overcome by the fact that it's Peter's voice and she recognizes Peter's voice that rather than opening the door, she runs back to tell the people praying, Peter's at the door. Meanwhile, Peter is looking back, forth, looking for Roman guards, knocking on the door. They are arguing with Rhoda that she is just making this up, that it's really his angel. Maybe they'd given up on the fact that the prayers were going to be of impact. I don't know, but they're... So you can see this exchange going on between Rhoda, who they're not quite sure has got it straight. Uh, Peter is outside, knocking at the door, persistently knocking at the door. Finally, finally, somebody answers the door, and lo and behold, who is it? It's Peter. And they are absolutely stunned. And so the minute he comes in, of course, after being stunned for a few moments, everybody starts talking. And, uh, you know, uh, everybody's got something to say because this is not what they expected. And finally, Paul has to, you know, raise his hand, get everybody quiet, and he tells them the story step by step, the play by play, how the Lord's angel took him out of the prison. It's a miraculous story of God's intervention. Uh, but it's interesting that at the end of this particular account, Paul says, make sure that James and the brothers in Jerusalem hear about this. And it's this verse that gives us our first clue that there is a change in leadership in the Jerusalem church. Uh, we know that many of the apostles moved away from Jerusalem and had missionary uh, adventures throughout the world at that particular point. So eventually they kind of moved out. But there needed to be leadership at the church in Jerusalem. It looks like James, the brother of Jesus now, this is not James the apostle, this is James the brother of Jesus, not one of the apostles originally, um, takes up a new role as kind of the figurehead, the leadership uh, leader in Jerusalem while Peter moves on. And then it says Peter kind of got out of the public eye and maybe he went to Antioch. It doesn't really say in the book of Acts what happened to Peter next after this event. And so... Um, James probably was a good leader for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we kind of understand that the church in Jerusalem still had not totally uh, identified itself as separate from Judaism. There were some things they felt uh, in Judaism that need to be respected, like you sort of became an advocate to Judaism, then to Christ, that kind of came in that order. And we're going to find in Paul's letters later on that the circumcision party continues to kind of hound him in various places people from the Jerusalem church who still feel that Judaism has to be respected. Um, but in any case, uh, James, who was kind of one of their own and uh, a brother of Jesus, was definitely uh, coming to a place where he was having some authority and some leadership in the Jerusalem church. Now, while this was happening, and this story is a fascinating story, I can just see, you know, Rhoda arguing with the people praying and Peter looking both ways, knocking on the door, trying to get in. It's kind of an interesting, interesting episode. Uh, we read in verse 18 that when day came, this is the day after now, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. And after Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Herod is absolutely perturbed by the turn of events. He looks for Peter, he cannot find them, and so he holds the guards to account. And it was part of the Roman practice uh, of punishing soldiers who lost prisoners. You know, they would get the same punishment as the prisoner was gonna get. And uh, so as a result, um, they forfeited their lives by their 
apparent carelessness. But really, at the end of the day, when you step back from this moment, these guys had every incentive in the world to be on top of what was going on in that prison at the time. And it kind of pays testimony to the fact that God intervened, not only in opening gates and loosening chains, but also in you know, putting these sentries uh, in a sleep that allowed Peter to get out. It just sort of, I think, underlines the divine intervention that takes place. And so we come to the kind of the last part, the last few verses of this section. Uh, Peter had been miraculously delivered, but Herod is still at large terrorizing the church. And here, too, God decides to directly intervene on behalf of the Jerusalem church. Um, so we read in verse 20, now Herod was angry. He's in Caesarea now. Uh, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We really don't know why. There's lots of historical speculation on what transpired, but somehow or another they were at odds with Herod, which was not a good place to be, by the way. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. So to be living in Tyre and Sidon and having a dispute with Agrippa was just really not a smart place to be. And so they decided to you know, take the political route and say, we're going to sue for peace and see if we can uh, remedy this situation. And uh, as they're there on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. No clapping. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So um, pretty straightforward what takes place here. Uh, there's an event where you know, some of uh, Herod's subjects are out of favor with him, and they try to come. They try to make it right. And along the way, you know, Herod decides to get on his royal robes and wax eloquent in the public forum. And um, the crowd desperately wanting to curry favor and tell Herod what he wants to hear, starts saying, the man is a god. That's their testimony. And Herod, unfortunately, believes his own press clippings. And he receives wrongful praise, and that brings on the judgment of God himself. It's interesting to note that the Jewish historian Josephus uh, corroborates this story that it took place. The details in his story are a little different than the details in Luke's story, but the fact that they both agree it took place is sort of interesting that there is this uh, extra biblical source sort of giving some legitimacy to this story. And both Luke and Josephus see the event as God's judgment on an arrogant ruler. So it's kind of interesting that they arrive at the same uh, place. So despite Herod's effort to squash the church in Jerusalem, the word of God continues to increase and spread. No one, however highly placed or powerful, can derail God's purposes. I think there's a blank for that on your sheet. God is still at work on behalf of the Jerusalem church and its ministry, and he's concerned for his ancient people, Israel. And so Barnabas and Saul complete their mission to Jerusalem, and they return to Antioch, bringing Mark with them. There's a few learning points that I think cross the centuries and... Um, uh, are relevant to us today. And number one, it's the whole notion that the missionary uh, effort of the church is empowered by God. 
At the end of the day, you and I cannot change a person's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so salvation is always a work of the Holy Spirit. But we have a role in getting the word out. But the mission of the church is empowered by God at the end of the day. We're reliant on him. Uh, human plans and strategies play a role, but we rely on the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Secondly, the mission of the church is carried out by godly messengers. And that, uh, that is simply referring to men and women who don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. They don't just proclaim the message, they embody the message. Barnabas would be a good example. Um, thirdly, the mission of the church is assisted by the unity or solidarity of believers. It is a team uh, effort from beginning to end, and you really get that impression as you go through the book of Acts and see how not only does Paul gather people around him, you see the church again and again rising to the case to kind of um, support the mission of the preaching of, of Jesus Christ, and so it's very much a team effort throughout the rest of the book of Acts, even though, you know, people like Paul play a prominent role. Uh, number four, leaders of the church are prepared for persecution. They expect it, they're not intimidated by it, they press on in the face of it. One of the things that Jesus absolutely uh, refused to, to ignore was to warn his disciples, to warn the apostles, that if they were going to preach his word, there was going to be pushback. And Jesus talks about this in a number of places. There's going to come a time that, you know, people are going to push back. But don't worry about it. You're not going to be alone in those moments. In fact, God himself, the Holy Spirit himself, will give you the words you need to speak in that particular situation. So basically, he was preparing them so they wouldn't be thrown when a persecution came that this is something that you're going to expect. Uh, when he reaches out to Saul and Saul is converted, he says two things to him. He says, you are going to be a missionary for me to the Gentiles, but Saul, you are also going to understand what suffering means as you follow through on that calling. And so you find that, you know, um, as we go through the New Testament, um, this notion that persecution accompanies, you know, the preaching of God's word, it's not kind of swept under the table or ignored. It's just sort of acknowledged and realized that, God's power is big enough. It can sustain us even through all of that. Um, uh, I think five or six, I'm not sure which one I'm on. Believers fact in the possibility of God's intervention. Uh, when we pray, uh, we're not just offering up wishful thinking. We believe that God is able to intervene miraculously if necessary to bring about his purposes. And so there's a certain expectation that goes along with prayer that we're not just kind of playing a role or doing what is the ritual uh, practice, but when we pray, we expect that God is going to answer somehow or another. It might be yes, might be no. He may, you know, may do something miraculous. We don't know. But we believe that God hears prayer and that he answers prayer. And finally, we know that God's enemies will face God's judgment, either in this life or at the judgment seat when Jesus Christ comes again as judge. So this kind of brings us to the end of, of these first two parts, which is really um, the redemptive mission to the Jews. Now, as we start next time, we're going to see how the missionary thrust uh, to the Gentiles unfolds and gets as far as Rome. So... Um, Next time when we get together, it will be on March the 1st. Calvin Weber will be directing us and introducing us into this next segment. And, of course, that third part will kind of take it 
missionary journey by missionary journey and kind of see all the things that the Holy Spirit did as the church kind of expanded through that area. So God bless you each one. Good to have you here today and don't miss March 1st. You want to be here for the next exciting chapter in the story. Okay, God bless you.